Let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter number 2. And I uh, said a while back that we would be uh, switching back and forth as... um, Typically, we had our Sunday morning meeting and the Sunday evening and uh, was preaching through Genesis Sunday evening and Acts on Sunday morning, and I said that I would kind of switch back and forth, but uh, really I've been uh, spending some time in Acts chapter number 2, and uh, the Lord's been um, uh, speaking to my heart in Acts chapter 2, and so I thought that I'd uh, continue in Acts as I did last week. And so notice Acts chapter number 2, we're going to pick up in verse number 37. We dealt with that verse last week and continue in our study of this wonderful book. Now notice Acts 2 verse 37 after the message of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Notice what happens. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I would like to bring your attention to the last verse of our text, the last verse in this chapter, and uh, consider the words of the very last sentence, the Lord added to the church. The Lord added to the church. Now, the book of Acts is certainly an exciting record to consider and read through. Uh, We are... Again, I believe, with the Lord's help, we are striving not to be 21st Christianity or a 21st century type of church. We are striving to be a 1st century type of church. Uh, We have identified already in this chapter several important truths concerning the 1st century church. And uh, by the way, this gives us comfort because... As we continue in the Apostles' Doctrine, the Apostles here on the day of Pentecost, we see the church being empowered, the promise of the Father coming down in the person of the Holy Ghost and empowering them to speak of the wonderful works of God. Uh, We see number one as we identify uh, one of the important truths concerning the first century church is the miracle is confirming here. Uh, There was miracles that happened, and again, as we think about those miracles, those miracles were a sign by God 
we know as taught by Joel or prophesied by Joel to be assigned to the Jews in Jerusalem. At Pentecost, many of the Jews uh, that were part of the diaspora that were spread around around the world were come at that time in Pentecost uh, to be part of that great feast. And we understand that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 tells us, Now therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." And so as we think about the beginning of the church, and by the way, this was a one-time event. I know that in the early 1800s, people try to claim that, hey, we have to experience the day of Pentecost again. The day of Pentecost is once in a, life, in a, in a lifetime event in the course of human history. We don't need another Pentecost. We only need one Pentecost, and that is God putting His stamp of approval upon His people, His church. When Jesus said, I will build my church... He separated His church from all other congregations in the world. And He did so there in Acts chapter 2. Just as the miracles that accompany the person of Christ was God's stamp of approval saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When the, the power of the Holy Ghost came down on the day of Pentecost, it is God saying, This is my church in whom I am well pleased. And so we see the miracle is confirming this church, but also we see the message is Christ. Uh, clearly, as uh, uh, the commotion happens and the people are begin to mock, some people are amazed, some people are wondering at what happened, the Apostle Peter stands up and preaches in the midst of them, and we would think at that moment that he would say, hey, let me tell you how you can experience the same thing that these people are experiencing. No, he points them to one person, and that's the person of Christ. The message that the Apostle Peter preached in verse 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words... Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter says, you see what's happening on the day of Pentecost, I'll give you the reason why all this is happening. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. And let me explain to you this Jesus of Nazareth and in his message on the day of Pentecost from verse 22 through verse number 36, he comes to a conclusion after he weaves his way in his message through the Old Testament. He comes to verse 36 and he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel... Know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus. What same Jesus? The Jesus he introduced in verse 22. That same Jesus whom ye have crucified, God hath made him both Lord and Christ. So we not only see the miracle of confirmation, we uh, see the message is Christ, but also we see the moving of the Spirit of God or the moving in conversion. We notice in verse number 37, now when they heard this, heard what? The message about Jesus, who he was, his work. They heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Uh, this is much like what we see happen later in Acts chapter 7 when the apostle or the uh, Stephen preached and you remember as he uh, stands before these Jews and they're all upset and he confronts them and he says, You stiff-necked and circumcised and, ear, and heart and ears, Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, and your fathers, uh, as your fathers did, so also do ye. And he goes on uh, to tell them, the Bible says uh, about these men, that they, are, uh, they were cut to the heart. 
This pricking of the heart, this cutting of the heart. What, what work? Where does this work come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do. In John chapter number 16, verse 7, as Jesus is preparing His disciples for His departure, He tells them about the Comforter and He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send Him unto you. And when He has come, what will He do? He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. And so Jesus had announced what the Spirit of God would be doing as soon as He comes down and He would reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so when the Spirit of God pricks the heart of the Jews, and when He cuts to the heart, that's the work of the Spirit of God. Now we see as we come to Acts chapter number 2, another truth that we uh, look at this church, the first century church, so we uh, identify the miracle of confirmation. The message is Christ, the moving and conversion, but also we notice the multiplication of the church. The Bible tells us very clearly, and the Lord added to the church daily. You see, there are several ways that we can look at our text. We can look at this text out of amazement at what happened on the day of Pentecost, and certainly it was an amazing day. Uh, we can look at this text as a summary of what took place in the lives of the people of that day that heard the message, but I would like to, appro to approach this, our text by asking one question. And that is this. Are we today like the people described at the end of the second chapter of Acts? Are we like the people described at the end of the second chapter of Acts? Now this question brings us to an important examination, I believe, of our lives as individuals, but also of our church as a whole. We live in a troubling time. I emphatically declare that I am not as much troubled by what I see in the world as much as I am troubled with what I see in churches. Now consider the following portion. This is an article that I read recently. And the title of the article was this. Absolutes the 21st century must embrace or die. Let me say that again. Absolutes that the 21st century church must embrace or die. It was written by Dr. Steve McSwain. He is described as a speaker, author, counselor to congregations. I don't know if those existed. Interfaith ambassador, spiritual teacher. Uh, he mentions in the article, he says, here is a sampling of some of the old absolutes to which dying 21st century churches and church leaders still cling to today. Now, these are what dying churches still cling to today. These absolutely list those, and he says this. The Bible is inerrant and infallible. Well, uh, yes, amen. We believe that, do we not? Adam and Eve were real people. The first two to walk on the planet Earth. Creationism is a credible explanation of the origin of all things. We would say, Amen. amen. Evolution is just a theory. Amen. amen. Original sin is an infectious disease that separates everyone from God. Amen. 
substitutionary atonement or the belief in a God that sent his son to pay for the price of sin. Amen. Amen. Homosexuality is abhorrent to God. Hell is the final destiny for anyone who does not believe in Jesus. Amen. Now he says here, this is a sampling of some of the absolutes to which dying 21st century churches and church leaders still cling to today. He goes on and he says this, It is many of these absolutes that I see millennials rejecting outright. In other words, if you want to know why this generation has left the church, look no further. You'll find many of the reasons in these antiquated, antiquated, antiquated beliefs. I have listed below a few of the absolutes a new generation of believers are embracing. These absolutes are among the 21st century church and the future must embrace with both enthusiasm and devotion if vitally, if vitally is to be desired for a good outcome. And he, this is the new absolutes, he says, of the 21st century. Are you ready for them? The universal need for union with God. Now, that seems okay on the surface, but it means something else. The innate goodness within all people. The Bible is our guide. And I thought, oh, that's good. It is not our rule book. And certainly not our science text. Jesus is our way to God. So I thought, oh, that's great. But then he continues, but we know our God is bigger than any one belief about her in reference to Christ. Doubts and questions are encouraged here. In fact, we believe faith is forged through doubt. Stewardship is about money, but also a, a justice for all people and the care of God's planet. Heaven is not about golden streets any more than hell is about flames and torture. He goes on and he mentions this as justification because he needs a proof text because he's a spiritual teacher. And this is what he used. I, am, I remain hopeful. As St. Paul put it, old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. The point of the article is clear. A church must change to adapt to the 21st century if a church is going to survive the 21st century. In essence, the declaration of Dr. Stephen McSwain is, how can we add to the church in the 21st century? My simple reply to this unsavory article is to bring our attention to Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to the church. You see, my strong contention is that if man is adding to the church, then that is no church at all. Because the only biblical church alive today is the church that God is adding to. And so I would like to preach a message that I've entitled from our text, verse 47, And the Lord added to the church. And with this question in mind, as we think and look at the 
church of Acts, and I think it's a good point to ask this question, and that is this, are we like the people described at the end of the second chapter of Acts? And the truth is, as we think about uh, the majority of churches and some of the uh, debates that goes on about churches, I, I would agree that there's a great majority of churches who are no longer interested in the Bible, no longer interested in preaching God's Word, and I believe that that is the chief reason why people are leaving the church. Not because they hold on to some old path or first century doctrine, but because uh, they uh, no longer teach those things and that's why people are leaving. When the church becomes more like the world, then the people who are in the church think to themselves, we can find this anywhere. And so as I consider the people in Acts chapter number 2, I ask ourselves this question as a church, but also individually, do we look like these first century Christians? I want to give you three main points in our message, in our text. But first of all, I want to consider, as we think about the question, and remember as they were pricked in their heart, there's a conviction taking place in their lives, and we know that the Bible says 3,000 people received the Lord Jesus Christ, were baptized, were added to the church, continues in the apostles' doctrine, and it's certainly a wonderful thing. But as we think about when they ask this question, I want you to notice Peter's reply in verse number 38. They declare, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, here it is, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And I, first of all, I want to consider in our text the demand for salvation. Now, when I'm talking about the demand for salvation is how do we identify what is it that these people in that moment on the day of Pentecost had to do in order to be converted? What is it that had to take place? Well, I believe we can sum that up in three things. I want to be careful on how I addressed what I see Peter declaring to the Jews in Jerusalem. His declaration, again, is followed by the salvation of 3,000 people. Now remember that their question was simple. What shall we do? You see, they were under the conviction of the Spirit of God. Their heart was pricked when they heard the preaching of the Word of God. And as we have identified, these people were the same people that had cried out because Peter says, Ye have crucified. These are the same people who had cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! What had to happen in their lives for them to become Christians? How could they be saved? Everything changed in the lives of these people. As a matter of fact, you find these same people who shouted, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! are the same people who are on that day would identify with Christ in believers' baptism, would join themselves to the church there in Jerusalem, 3,000 of them. They would steadfastly continue in the apostles' doctrine. They would give themselves daily to the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. And so what we find happening is a complete change. These people right here were transformed. Everything changed in the lives of these people. Uh, to what do we attribute this change? Well, we must attribute this change first to the action of the Spirit of God as they were pricked in their hearts. Remember, that's what Jesus Christ said. That's what the Holy Spirit would do. He would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that's exactly what we find here in Acts chapter number 2 as the Spirit of God come down, came down. So what happened on that day one preacher 
summed it up well. The Holy Spirit used the words of a frail, ignorant, driving them into their minds and hearts and consciences in those that are listening. Now I say that because that's exactly what Paul claimed in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. Paul said this, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what happened on the day of Pentecost is not some powerful Peter that stood up and preached. What happened on the day of Pentecost is a frail, fearful man who stood up and preached the Word of God, and the powerful Spirit of God convicted men. And Peter got to be part of that. What a wonderful privilege. So there are several things we identify as we think about the demand for their salvation. What is it that had to happen to them in order for them to receive the Word, to be baptized, to be added to the church, to continue in the Apostles' doctrine? Well, notice three things. Salvation, first of all, is identified in a repenting. Notice what the Apostle Peter says in verse number 38. Then Peter said unto them, what's the message? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, the word repent means that they had to change their minds completely. However, we must be careful to identify such repentance as repentance concerning something specific. But it's not just, again, as we talked about in Sunday school, just talking about just repentance generally speaking, or should I say someone specific. Some of those people, remember, had said just a few days earlier when Jesus Christ came in, Hosanna to the Son of David. Just a few days later, they said, these same people said, away with Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. So now, these same people had to change their mind completely about the person of Jesus Christ. They had to repent. Why? Because obviously they did not know who He was. They saw Him as a good man. Some saw Him as a good teacher. Saw some Him as come from God. But many of them did not see Him as the Messiah. As the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. They did not see that. So what had to happen? Salvation is identified in a repenting, but a repenting about the person of Christ. And that's seen in the message. Remember what Peter preached? He says, look, uh, hearken unto me, uh, ye people of Israel... Jesus of Nazareth, let me explain to you who Jesus is because you need to change your mind about the person of Christ. And he's going to go on and at the end he's going to conclude that God hath made him whom ye have crucified. That same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so what had to happen? They had to change their mind about the person of Christ. That's part of salvation. 
You see, someone cannot be saved unless they understand uh, who Jesus is, unless they change their mind. Uh, perhaps you can go back to before you were saved. You saw perhaps Jesus Christ as some uh, man in the, uh, in the parade of human history. Some of you perhaps saw Him as just some uh, uh, man that people followed that started a religion. But when you understood and the Gospel was preached to you, what had to happen, your mind had to change about the person of Christ. You have to understand who He was. And so therefore, when we think about salvation, what happened to these people on that day, we identified a repenting. They had to change the mind about the person of Christ, about who He was, and what He came to do. You see, false religions today make people think about everything else except Jesus Christ. And that's why they are false religions. The first thing that they had to face was the person of Jesus Christ. They had to understand that this Jesus was made both Lord and Christ. He was God in the flesh and He came to die as our substitute in the person uh, robed in flesh so that He could die for our sins. So first of all, we think about the demand of salvation. What that had to happen in the lives of these uh, people? Well, salvation is identified in a repenting, but also number two, salvation is identified in a calling. Notice verse number 39. The Bible says, For the Scripture is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Now, the word call speaks of a summon, uh, an invitation. This promise, notice he says, uh, who, who is it to? Well, it's clear in the verse. To you, to your children, and to all that are afar off. So you know what that means? It includes everybody. When Paul was at Athens, you remember when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, uh, he, he presented to them uh, the God whom they did not know. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commendeth all men everywhere to repent. You see, salvation is identified as the calling. The voice that rings around the world is the call of God, commanding all men everywhere to repent. Salvation is identified as a calling. Do you remember that time? Now, to me, it was not in the scenario like the day of Pentecost. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church every week, even when I was sick. <laughs> Memorized Bible verses, prayed with my family, did all the things we were supposed to do, but it was, wasn't until I was eight years old that I clearly heard the call of God for the first time. And I understood for the first time that Jesus died for me. And I recognized for the first time that I was a sinner, that I deserve hell. And I realized for the first time, even though I know those, those things in my head, and I live those things, yet uh, my heart was as empty as could be. And I heard the call of God. So we see that salvation is identified as a repenting. It is identified as a calling. But also thirdly, salvation is identified in a separating. Now understand what I'm saying with all of those. I'm not saying that repentance... By, by repenting, it's, repentance does not bring about salvation. It's changing your mind about who Jesus is. Uh, and a calling does not bring about salvation. Some, some people say, oh yeah, I was in the hospital and I died and then I heard the voice of God. Uh, about what? What did He say? Well, He said I'll be okay. Well, that's not the call of salvation. 
You see, the repenting, the calling is a specific repenting, is a specific calling. And notice there's one more thing. A salvation is identified in a separating verse 40. He says, and with many other words that he testify and exhort saying. Now notice, he said, the Bible says he said many things. In other words, the day of Pentecost went on and on. He kept talking. The message is sort of, some of you say, hey, pastor, I think I can't remember who said it. Pastor, there's only a few verses he preached. And you, know, you preached for a whole lot longer than Peter preached. Well, the truth is he kept going. <laughs> Uh, notice the Bible says he went on and he exhorted with many words. He testified and exhorted, saying, notice here it is. This is, uh, if you would, a summary of what Peter was saying. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, the word save here, doesn't, uh, here he doesn't say like save yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstrap and save. That's not what he's saying. The word save means to deliver. But notice Peter says, save yourselves from this on-to-word generation. In other words, this is what Paul in effect is, or Peter is in effect is saying. You are part of something right now. And you must leave that thing to become part of something else. And now what was that thing? Well, it was the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was what the Jews commonly knew. And uh, Paul explained it in Romans chapter 10. He says that some, many of them, go about to establish their own righteousness. And as a result, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And so what ha happened on that day is all of these people were living and they had established their own righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes had added to the law of God. They had a number of rules, a number of rituals, a number of things that they had to keep that were uh, outside of the law of God. Even God says, by your traditions, you nullify, you destroy the law of God and so they had a they were part of a system and here what they had to happen they had to save themselves from that system that couldn't save them they couldn't stay there if they wanted to be saved they had to leave that system to go to be in another place to be among another group of people they had to leave that for something else I want you to go with me to Ephesians chapter number 2 here Paul as he writes to the church at Ephesus he explains it very clearly in very definite terms and he says in Ephesians chapter 2 notice verse 11 with me Paul writes and he says wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone." in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So what does he say here? He says, you were strangers, you were foreigners, you were aliens, uh, you were the enemies of God. 
You were removed. You were part of something else. You were part of another group. But what happens at salvation? A separating takes place. You were part of one group, and now you become part of another group. And he says you were strangers. You were, uh, you were uh, uh, basically aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're part of the household of God. You're uh, part of a different group of people in the world. And your citizenship is in heaven. And so when we think about salvation, how is that described? It is identified as a repenting, as a calling, and also as a separating. Again, salvation is the testimony that we have become different. That's what Paul said. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have become complete, separated from the world. He says here, save yourselves from this unto word generation. The word unto word means uh, that which is warped, that which is perverse, that which is crooked. And so let me try to explain here. Uh, there, there were many that, had, uh, that, that make a terrible mistake when people have attributed some salvation to, uh, uh, well, or repentance. Or they've attributed salvation to some calling, or even they've attributed the salvation to some separating. In other words, people say, well, yeah, one day I felt bad for my sin and I, I just got saved. Or I, I go uh, every day to uh, see uh, the priest and uh, he absolves my sins. And they say that's repentance. Some say, well, I heard the voice of God calling me and he told me everything will be okay and so... I got saved, I became a Christian. Or someone says, well, you don't understand, I, the way I live, I live separate from the world. No, no, when we think about all those things and we identify the, if you would, the demand of salvation, we identify that this is a repenting concerning the person of Christ, understanding who He is and what He did. It is a calling from God. Why? A calling to what? Uh, well, to separate from the world, to be, it's a calling that says you are no longer part of the world, but now you're part of the family of God. This is where you were, and now God has brought you here. And that's why in 1 John, uh, uh, John the Apostle says, Ye have passed from death unto life. You were in death, that's where you were, and now you have passed on to life. And so. We see in our text here the demand of salvation. We ask ourselves, what is the Christian message? It seems to us it's pretty clear. It is completely contradictory to the majority of the message of the world. Today we have a, so basically a social call among churches. To do what? To feed the hungry. To save the planet. To try to have some sort of social justice agenda. To try to help make people's lives a little better. That is not Christianity. That is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God will transform your life. And so we see not only the demand for salvation, but also we see secondly the difference of salvation. I want to examine for just a few moments what happened to these people because again, these people were the same, remember? Hosanna to the son of David. A few days later, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And now Peter stands and says, You have crucified Him. And God hath made Him whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That person. That's who Jesus is. Now, what happened to these people is quite remarkable. I want you to go with me back to Acts. If you left your, your place there in Acts, 
If you go back with me to Acts chapter number 2 and we come to verse 41, notice Acts 2. Notice what happens. The Bible says, verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word. Now the word they is important because we understand that not everybody whose heart was pricked received. It was only they was a portion, the 3,000. Now we think, wow, that's a significant number, but understand, it was a great minority of the people in Jerusalem that were part of the feast. As a matter of fact, we could perhaps even say that that number was insignificant compared to the population there. So it is remarkable, yes. But also we cannot neglect the fact. But I want us to pay attention to what happened to this minority of people. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I want to go through the next few verses and consider the difference of salvation. We not only see the demand of salvation, but then we also see the difference of salvation. What happened to these people? Well, if you were part of something and God brings you and now you're part of something else, there ought to be something different in your life. These people's lives completely changed. From crying crucify Him to being baptized in the name of Jesus. To receiving the word that was preached. Well, what's the difference? Well, I want us to see, identify several things we find in this passage. First of all, we notice their gladness. Their gladness. Verse, verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word. Now we know that those received his word, those are the ones that believed in Jesus Christ. They were baptized. The Bible says the same day, the same day, they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. In other words, they knew what happened that day. They... They believed in Jesus Christ. They believe in the Messiah. But notice that the word that captures me is the word gladly. Understand what that means. Uh, the 3,000, again, we've established was a great minority of people. And as a matter of fact, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be too long after that that a, a persecution would arise after particularly the preaching of Stephen. And then the believers in Jerusalem would be scattered all abroad. And by the way, we know that that would result in many churches being planted uh, in the areas surrounding Jerusalem. But as we identify those people, the Bible says they gladly received their word. In other words, nobody had to twist their arm. They heard their message and they gladly received it. They wanted to be part of it. Uh, they uh, gladly not only received the word, they were baptized, they gladly identified with the person and the work of Christ in the waters of baptism. As we talked about, baptism pictures, as Philip talked to the Ethiopian eunuch, as they talked about baptism, pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that was a message in itself. But understand, they did that gladly. And as a Jew, that was quite significant. I think we've lost kind of the meaning of baptism today as we call it maybe the first step of obedience. And we neglect how important baptism is. What is baptism? It identifies it as a declaration on our part that I'm no longer part of the world. I'm part of the family of God. And from this day, I, I've given my life to God. He can use me as He pleases. And uh, it is a picture of what has happened in our lives. If you would, it is the public demonstration of what God did in our hearts. And so... But they did that gladly. Now at that time, if any of the Jews would profess Christ or followed Christ, many of those Jewish families would actually hold a funeral for their family members. They would count them as enemies, as removed. They would see their, those family members that I believe in Christ walking down the street. They would turn around, go the other way. If one of them tried to come and talk to his father or mother, his father or mother would deny him says, we never want to see you again unless you deny Jesus. 
But yet at that moment, knowing those circumstances and the vast majority of the people did not believe, and as a matter of fact, from the hatred they had for Jesus Christ and from the followers of Christ, a great persecution would arise from these same people against those who profess faith in Christ. Understand, they received the word gladly. I wonder if we've perhaps lost a little bit of that gladness. To identify with Christ. With the people of God. And understand what we do at our baptism ought to live on way beyond our baptism. On a daily basis we ought to declare I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It is not just a one-time event. Baptism is not something we do because it is a ritual. It is a picture of what we want our lives to be every day. Buried in the likeness of His death. And what do we say? Raised to walk in newness of life. That's what Christ does in our lives. So we identify the difference of salvation in their gladness, but also we identify the difference of their salvation in their steadfastness. So we ask ourselves, first of all, is there a gladness in our lives about what God did to us and for us? But the second thing we find is, what does that gladness produce? I believe it brings about, as we find in verse number 42, and they continued steadfastly. Now I want you to see here, because the word they, verse 41, they that gladly received were were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 44, and all that believed were together, So the they, I'll tell you who it is, it's all of them. All 3,000 of them. All 3,000 of them received the word with gladness, were baptized, and were added to the church. All 3,000 of them, the Bible says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. So notice here, their lives changed. Something started happening in their lives. What were they giving themselves to? They were steadfastly giving themselves over to the apostles' doctrine. They were continuing in the same doctrine again. They were not coming up with some new doctrine. They were continuing in the apostles' doctrine. What was given, they were studying. Uh, What was taught, they were uh, soaking it in. They were studying the Word of God. Uh, They uh, they wanted to uh, understand. Uh, They wanted to be able to teach. And as a matter of fact, as you identify, for example, Philip and Stephen, those were not apostles. They were men who were part of the church in Jerusalem. But they were steadfast. I, I wonder if we ask ourselves that question again. Do I resemble the first century Christians in my gladness and in my steadfastness? When it comes to the study of, of, of the Word of God, is that something I'll just say, well, you know, that's, the preacher can do that. Well, some people are interested in it. Other people aren't interested in it. I guess some people have a gift for it. It has nothing to do with the gift. As a matter of fact, when it lists the gift, Paul doesn't mention the study of the Scriptures. It is something that was expected of all the believers. And as a matter of fact, it seems like if they were steadfast, it seems that to me that they were consumed with it. Well, that's first century 
Believers, we see their gladness, we see their steadfastness, we also see another thing, and that is their togetherness. Notice the, I don't know if that's a word, I hope it is, but verse 44, notice the Bible says, and all that believed were together and had all things common. That's why we believe in the local New Testament church. There is a local church that is visible, where people can be taught, when people can be disciplined, where people can grow, where people can be baptized, this idea that there's this invisible church that you're part of, and you don't have to be part of a local church, is hogwash. They were together. They met together. They sung together. They prayed together. They preached together. They taught together. They went out together. Everything they did as believers in that society, as many of their family members reviled them and dismissed them, they were together. There was no other group of people in the world that they were together with more than those believers. They were together. Well, that's interesting, particularly this year. Of all the things that is happening and you hear voices here and there that says, oh wow, I really enjoy this worshiping online stuff. I really enjoy this having church online and I'm really comfortable with it. If you're comfortable with it, you are not a first century Christian. The first century believers were together. That is a local assembling Together in one place. That's what the local church does. Do we look like that? You see the gladness, their steadfastness, their togetherness. The Bible says even, notice they, not only all the believers were together, they had, all, they had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had. In other words, you see, they knew what everything was going on in the people in the church. Hey, we, uh, there's a need over here. Let's, let's help this person. There's a need. Everybody, there's a need here. Some, uh, a brother in Christ has a need. Let's all get in and help them. Uh, that's uh, uh, the responsibility. And by the way, the reason why that was significant was because some of them were disavowed by, disavowed by their families. So if some of them were sick and they trusted Christ, their families would not be taking care of them anymore. Who was left to take care of them? The church. Nobody else would help them. And so here you find this togetherness. There's, there was this bond in the church that was there and there was something special that was going on. And uh, perhaps if we go back there, perhaps we would be convicted. But I believe here God opens the pages of Scripture and shows us here, if you pull the curtains away, if you open the back doors of the church of the first century and you open, this is what the church looked like. So we see their gladness, their steadfastness, their togetherness. There's another thing we find, and that is their earnestness. The Bible says in verse number 46, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and in breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Uh, I focus there, right there on the, they continued daily. It, it seems to me that their lives completely changed. Their lives before their salvation was busy with a lot of different things. But now that they're in Christ, they're busy with the things of God. Not just Sunday. Daily. Daily. You know, we live in an interesting time. There's a lot of activities, things we can do. As a matter of fact, you can now find all the statistics you want. If you have any type of smart technology, you can find how many hours you spend on devices, 
how many hours you do this, doing this, on different types of application. You can figure out everything that you give your time to. We have all of those time-saving devices. And yet, often, we say we do not have enough time to be involved in the things of God. I would imagine that if the timing of the Lord for the crucifixion of Christ would have happened today, do we not think that if the believers were in the circumstances that we are living in today, what would their choices be? For what they would give their time to daily. Well, that's what the church did. We see their gladness, their steadfastness, their togetherness, their earnestness, but also we see their courteousness. And I come to verse 47, and notice here, kind of the last thing that is mentioned about uh, there in the close of chapter number 2, is praising God, and notice here, having favor with all the people. And the, P and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so uh, what I like to notice here is that they were praising God, but also they were having favor with all the people. In other words, the people that hated them respected them. Even perhaps their family members that says, hey, we're going to disavow you. We never want to see you again. The Bible says here in Jerusalem, that's what the Bible tells us, that they, when they were praising God, they were having favor with all the people. In other words, the people in Jerusalem, although they saw a change in a minority group of people, they saw what those people were giving themselves to, and they had respect for them. They thought to themselves, wow, something happened to them. Their life is completely changed. The things they used to do, like it sounds, they don't do those anymore. The things they uh, didn't do before, now they're doing some strange things and they're spending a whole lot of time in God's Word and they talk about the Bible and they meet together and they pray and they do those things daily. I mean, it's crazy today. We live in the 21st century and people still go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They pray together? You mean they study God's Word? They open the Bible? They study the doctrines of the Bible? You mean they give themselves to that? Yes, and that's what we ought to be doing. You see, the people had respect. They had favor with all the people. Even though certainly people hated them, they had to respect them for their lives. Could it be that the reason why the world doesn't respect the church is because the church does not resemble first century Christianity? Could it be that the reason why the governors and the, uh, the, the uh, community leadership said churches are non-essential is because the church has been communicated for a very long time that churches are not essential? That everything that the church does can be done through other avenues? Has that not been communicated? And so when a few Christians here and there bark and say this is not good, this is not right, they laugh and they scorn. You see... The church there and the believers look different. And so we see in our text, not only here the demand for salvation, the difference of salvation, but also thirdly, we see the disturbance of salvation. You see, what happened on the day of Pentecost disturbed the whole city. As a matter of fact, we'll keep reading through the book of Acts. It was quite a disturbing scene. Notice in verse number 43 of Acts 2, the Bible says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now, the every soul here is not talking about the believers. 
Fear came upon every soul as those who were outside the church. Why? Because we connect that to the end as he talks about how praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We know, we find that again and again in the book of Acts. When a miracle will happen, when the preaching happened, when people saw lives being changed, what happened? The people in the world feared. They thought, wow, this, this is serious. The fear of the Lord came. There, that was a disturbance. Understand that if you talk about the things of God and if you speak of the spiritual things because you love the Lord, understand people are not going to like you. But you know what that will also produce? It will, it will produce the fear of God. You see, men don't like the fear of God. They don't like fear at all. Uh, men do not, generally speaking, do not want to be faced with the judgment of God. And every time a Christian walks around representing God and speaking on behalf of God to them, it brings conviction. It brings fear. Why? Because if there's a God, that means judgment. And now these people's lives are transformed and fear came upon every soul and everybody here there was in fear of the Lord. That's the disturbance of salvation. It's amazing. We hear testimonies often and uh, my uh, in-laws, when they came to know the Lord, my uh, father-in-law was working in the casinos in Atlantic City there in New Jersey and uh, just having a great career moving up through the management and uh, all the uh, family get-togethers and all the parties had a nice mansion and in-ground swimming pool in the back and just beautiful and everything was going great until he got saved. And then he got saved and his wife got saved and uh, they were in their 30s. Well, then things changed. <laughs> but things were different. Uh, they began going to church. And they realized that something was preached from the pulpit. They thought to themselves, well, that's what the Bible says. We're going to do that. Well, the Bible says here we shouldn't be doing this. We should be doing this. And so we're going to be involved. And there was an excitement for the things of God. Uh, but guess what? The family members around would start to come and would say, uh, hey, uh, are you okay? They would come, they would come to his wife and say, Are you okay? Are you okay? They thought they had lost their minds. Why? Because everything changed when Christ moved in. So you know what that did? It disturbed things. It stirred things up. It, it disturbed the normal routine of what was going on. What is interesting is we not only see the fear of the Lord, but also see we see the favor of the Lord. What's interesting is that they fear the Lord, but then they had favor with all the people. So all the people feared, but yet all the people uh, were favorable towards them. They, they, they had respect to them. They thought to themselves, wow, I mean, we cannot, we, we cannot debate what's going on. Something has changed. And so the disturbance is the disturbing of the fear of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. But there's one more thing. And that is the fruit of the Lord. Notice verse 47. When they had favor with all the people, and the Bible says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You know how that disturbed Jerusalem? Because God was plucking a regular Jew in Jerusalem from the regular Jewish traditions. And God was taking that Jew and placing that Jew in the family of God. 
And when you see, the Bible says they were added. That means one by one they were added. They went, they were part of something, and then now they became part of something else. They were plucked out of the miry clay. They were plucked out of sin. And uh, you find this transition taking place. And so understand, when they were added, that means there was less over here. And as a result, that left different. The workplaces changed when God changed the life of men. Those families changed. And so everything in Jerusalem was disrupted. Why? Because of the work of God. The Lord added to the church. So we look at that and say, wow, it's amazing. The Lord added. But think about all the implication in the lives of individuals when God added. God was at work doing a great work. And so we ask ourselves the question as we really look at this passage in overview, we ask ourselves, are we, am I, like the people described at the end of the second chapter of Acts? Is that what we are? And may the Spirit of God convict us and show us the things that are lacking in our lives. And look at first century Christianity and say, and would to God that that would be our desire. That we would say, may that be the yearning of our heart if the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit. That that would be our yearning. Says, this is the type of Christianity I want to look like. That's what I want to be like. And so may the Lord help us. The Lord added.